Welcome to Life Coach Pod show. We're still live until May 1st. That will be our last live show. Then we're going to go to recordings because of security issues and all kinds of other things. So live is proving to be, I love it, but it's proving to have its challenges. So we'll be live for another two or this week and next week, and then we'll be going to recordings. Just keep that in mind. So, you know, your one o'clock is going to be free again because I have so many fans that come at one o'clock. Anyway, uh, I'm very excited about today. It's so far, it's even been a good day. I started the day off right. We have a guest today, Kim Johnson, who's going to talk just about something serious. Even though I'm in a great mood, I think what she's going to talk about is incredibly important. Kim is here, and I want to remind everybody it is a Tuesday. We somehow already moved through a Monday of this week. It is April 21st, if you've lost count. And for those of you who are still sheltering in place, it is actually March 52nd. So yes, we've been here forever. Our upcoming guests tomorrow will celebrate Earth Day with Cole Chaikin, who happens to be the half-sister of my child, a sister from another mother. That's a long story, but she's amazing. So she'll be here tomorrow, as I hope I've confirmed it. And then Elizabeth Reed will be here to talk about cutting through the clutter. Mom, this is a special show dedicated just to you. And then Stephanie Simpson will be here to talk about rethinking stress. And then it'll be the end of the week already, and we'll be back to another Motivation Monday. So I can't believe how fast that's going. In our time capsule moments, those little things that are happening in the news that uh, surprise me or I think are worth paying attention to, the National Spelling Bee this year has been canceled. This is from The Hill, um, the publication The Hill. It is the first time since World War II. Can you spell historic? That's how big of a deal this is. And the thing is that's so sad about this is the spelling bee started in 1925. So oh, almost to the 100 year anniversary. And here we are almost, almost there. And the only other time it's been canceled was in 1943, 44 and 45 because of World War II. But the next competition will be in 2021. But here's the saddest part. They're not going to let the kids who miss out this year compete next year. They're keeping the regulations the same. So it's just a wah, wah, wah for the kids that are in eighth grade and wanted to go to the spelling bee this year. I'm so sad. But so many of these kids have missed out on big things. Graduations, 21st birthdays, birthday parties in general end of schools, end of school celebrations, being with their friends, their buddies. I mean, man, these youngsters are going to need to really be resilient. I suspect they'll have a different way of looking at the world because of all these really sad disappointments. Then I read an article. Okay, this is transition, rough transition. So I then read an article about what restaurants should do to stay afloat and boost sales while people are sheltering. The thing is, I thought the article was really good because it actually extends beyond restaurants, if you think about it. So this is from Business Insider, and they had seven steps, which I forgot to number as numbers. I put them as bullets, so there's that. But here's what it is. First of all, let your customers know that you're open. So this is absolutely true here in Sacramento. I'm seeing it. The restaurants, I have to look like three times to see if they're open. They need to be so blatant to say they're taking orders and that they put like a sawhorse or something outside. This is then, that advice extends to anyone, right? With a business, make sure people know you're open, that you're still doing business. Number two is to take care of your employees. The article talks about not just taking care of the employees that are coming in who are able to come into work, but if you've even furloughed some people, but you want to have them back, talk to them, keep in touch with them, take care of them. I think we'll find out that brands in particular, the brands that care about people during this time and the brands that don't, like Sephora, huge blowback when they laid off all their employees on a conference call, they just said, sorry, bye. The blowback for Sephora is huge on social media because that was so harsh. So whatever you do, take care of your employees. Even if you can't pay them, still love them. That's not hard and it's free. Uh, open drive through or curbside pickup. I'm going to add one more to this. The idea is to innovate in your business. If there's a way to get what you have to your customers, do that. Think of a different way to do it. In fact, there's a restaurant, uh, my friends at a restaurant down at Aftos, called the Bittersweet Bistro and they cannot be open. But what they did, because they have suppliers, they turned their deli side of the business, the, no, it was like a counter business, into a little mini mart with produce and all sorts of yummy things that they could get and made it really easy for their community to buy. So all they did was make a pivot. So the point is, 
Think about your business and think about if there's a way to just make a pivot or to do it a little more creatively. Go Google and see what other people are doing and copy them. That's, that's allowed. That's, you don't have to be an inventor of a new idea. So anyway, innovate in how you're doing it. For restaurants, they're saying open a drive-thru or curbside pickup. Offer to advertise family meal deals. So again, extrapolating that, the idea here is they're solving the problem for families. And boy, I'm certainly glad I don't have school-age children right now. But the idea is make it easy on your customers and they will come. So always uh, take advantage of that. And um, that's another way you can innovate for your business. Think of a way to package your goods or package what you do in a way that might meet different needs now people that have to share, people at home. And then assure your customers that your business, that your restaurant, that your whatever is, uh, is clean and has clean with visual markers. So I've talked about the app next door where we're all talking in our neighborhoods about things that we're doing and where's there's, where there's toilet paper and can I borrow a rake and all kinds of stuff. But the thing I've seen often is that when neighbors go eat at a place and don't see cleanliness, they are completely outing that business on next door. It bums me out a little bit because, you know, mistakes get made, but the thing is people are still managing to talk and share information. So no matter what your business is, if you're selling face masks, if you're doing hair, if you're doing tattoos, no matter what, assure your customers that it's clean and that you pride yourself on your cleanliness right now. That's going to mean everything. And again, it's one way to make sure your brand, you're holding up your brand. And then um, the last two, first one is uh, prepare your application for the next round of the pay, um, payment protection program. This is the PPP. We've talked about it a lot on the show. I firmly believe in this for gig workers, sole proprietors, and other small businesses. It's a good plan. It's out of money right now because the Fox was watching the hen house and big chains grabbed a lot of it, but they're adding more funds to the PPP. And if your application's ready, you should be in line. So go ahead and get that done. That's for, again, anyone, not just restaurants, anybody could have the payroll protection program. And if you use it hundred percent on payroll, you will not have to pay this loan back. It comes to you as a loan, but you document, keep track, and then you will not have to pay this loan back. It's so important. And then finally, and this is the one I love, this is their aspirational, um, very coachy kind of thing. Uh, be prepared to work with it, whatever the future brings. Normal won't be back anytime soon. We're going to see people pretend it's normal, but it's not going to be normal. And there's a lot of us out here who are really twitchy about germs and about cleanliness. So just, it's just like having a kid. You're just going to have to go with the flow. It's like also like having a puppy, same thing. You just think you know what you're doing, but you don't because that thing is going to be in charge. So same thing with this pandemic. You don't have control over it. So figure out how you can adapt and roll. And we know adaptation is the key here. All right. My last story really quick is, um, is interesting to me because I studied rhetoric. And what is rhetoric, Jen? That's about words and messages, but it usually means that I can persuade people to do things. It's a degree in bullshit is what it is. So I'm good at it. I do marketing. That's what I do. But I love looking at words and I love looking at messaging. And I found this article today from NBC. And this was done. So this is for, for, so first, this is considered from broadcast media. So just so you even understand who reported it, this is from NBC reporting this. They looked at attitudes on different topics based on what people watch on television. So they have in the first column, and y'all can come look at this, I'll put this on the blog post so you can see this um, in the blog so you don't have to go try to find it. But it shows that people who watch mainstream media, meaning broadcast media, like ABC, NBC, George Snuffleupagus, I don't even know who the other people are because I watch MSNBC. So that's cable news and CNN, but I generally watch MSNBC. Everybody knows that because I'm just a flaming lib apparently. And then there's Fox News. What is interesting is the gap, the huge gap in information and what people believe and therefore what influences their attitude. The takeaway from this from NBC, and that's what I think is important, is that we might expect this in politics, 
but it's quite another thing, and I'm actually reading their words, to see this divide when it comes to a public health crisis with tens of thousands of American lives on the line. In a situation where the federal response relies on public trust and experts, scientists and medical professionals, these numbers suggest voters are operating with a different set of facts based on their news consumption. So that matters. And I, I personally advocate people going to get news from multiple sources, check things, dig in, question, ask someone, look to see what their credentials are, look to see if they've reported on it before. Some people are coming off like they're experts, they've never talked about the topic before. So you, you owe it to yourself to dig in, but you also owe it to yourself to be aware of bias and to be aware of the, um, in coaching we call it the lens in which you look at the world. This will affect your lens. So uh, you owe it to yourself to do some due diligence. And with that, that is the end of today's time capsule. I would like to now introduce Kim Johnson, who is her, she's a Grounds for Clarity. And uh, she's here and I'm going to, I know I love this picture. I'm like, well, I guess the topic won't be too, too intense because look at that picture. It's pure joy. Uh, I'm going to tune you in. Now we can see everybody. Tell us about uh, tell us about yourself and why this is so important to you. So about me, I am <laughs> a washed out millennial. No, I'm just kidding. So I um, I really started my journey when I graduated from college, and that was seven years ago. Seems like just yesterday. I was 23 years old. I just finished my super senior year. Five years. And we call that just had extra, first job. super senior. I, I always tell people, slow down and enjoy that fifth year. That's right. I did not enjoy even the first year, but that's oh. beside the point. So, I mean, after, after graduating, so let's rewind a tiny bit. My last month of college was very anticlimactic. I had no idea what I was doing with my life. I had no passions, no dreams, no ambitions, nothing. And to boot, I felt like I was coming to this realization that I didn't really have an identity. My whole life has been about subservience. It's been about serving my family. It's been about being quiet, being obedient, and doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Which, mind you, even then, I, didn't, I don't even know if I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. I was just kind of existing. And then my mom told me that she, she called me, and it, I just remember it clear as day, she called me out of the blue, like one month before I'm supposed to graduate. And she said, I have breast cancer. So in my head, I just, I knew exactly what I wanted to say. And I said exactly what was in my head, which was, well, when, when are you going to go to get it out? And it just kind of, it, it shifted my world ever so slightly because that's how I dictated my life. I served my family. So I found this flyer under my bed when I was moving all of my stuff. It was a flyer from an internship and career fair I just attended, the first and last that I have ever attended in my life. And it, it was a job working as an after-school instructor. I'm like, I have never been a teacher. I have, I have no idea what I would do. I don't know anything about lesson plans. I don't know, I don't have kids? Oh, no. But the thing is, it worked perfectly with my schedule. So I just went with it, I went with the flow, and then about four months in, I had my first mental breakdown at work. And it didn't stop. I kept breaking down, I kept crying. The parents were like, oh my God, the cutest, youngest, little fresh off the college market is crying. Like, what's wrong, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know what's wrong. I just want to cry, that's all I wanna do, is cry. And then I hit this point where no matter what anybody said, no matter how much they cared, no matter how much concern was in their eyes, regardless of who they were in relation to me, it felt worse. Because not only was I being authentic to how I felt, I felt like I was completely invalidated. No one was listening to me. All they cared about was making me feel better, making me more comfortable to see for them. And my compassion is there in hindsight, I understand it's not easy to see someone you care about fall apart and everything you say makes it worse, makes it feel worse. So I felt isolated enough as it was, and it got to the point where I had this thought I'd never had in my life, which was, I wonder what the world would be like if I didn't exist anymore. So I, I legitimately 
felt there was no reason for me to be alive anymore. And the reason why that is, and I know that now why I'm so passionate about speaking about how suicide, speaking about suicide saves lives is because I know what it feels like to feel like no one is there for you. Even if it's your mom, your brother, your, your sister, your anybody, it doesn't matter. There's still people. So to me, I felt like no one gave a shit about me. No one, not even my mom. Can I ask a quick question? Is that because it it couldn't go in, that there was no way for it to go in, or you were really convinced? I was genuinely convinced okay. no one cared about me. And no matter how hard I tried to hope that things people said would penetrate through to me, my soul, my gut, of like, wow, they really do care. I didn't feel that. As much as I wished it to happen, it didn't happen. And I don't know what it is about me specifically. And I can tell all of you here, and some of you here already know, that I, aside from that moment, I don't have any firsthand experience with suicide ideation. I don't have a plan. I've thought about standing on railroad tracks before, but I haven't actually had a plan, had the means, the access, and that that chance, that opportunity that to, to follow through with taking my own life. However, I know that it's it's an accumulation and a process to get to that point. And that's the misconception I wanted to address right here, right now, is that there's more to suicide than suicide. It's not an isolated incident. It takes time, any duration of time, really, and something that just, it just pulls the rug right out from under your feet. And it can happen with anyone. This emotional overwhelm, all the community resources you have, all the relationships you have, like for me, I had access to resources. I know what the suicide hotline is. I, I, I knew where I could go to get support, but I didn't feel heard, no matter their professional role, no matter if I came from their womb. So I just, I'm curious to know, and I've had, I have, I've been curious about how to really spread this message without it falling on deaf ears. And I understand that's, that's not my, under my control. But the most I know that is under my control is, is letting people know that the way, the reason why speaking about suicide saves lives is because it's the pain associated with feeling like taking your own life is the only way, only thing left to ending the pain. We can all relate to something like that, but the thing is we are so barred and bombarded with the stigma of suicide and the taboo of suicide that it's hard for us to be open to the possibility of of realizing that it's actually a very self-empowering choice if you feel like you're at your you're at wit's end and you have nothing left and i think all of us might have experienced that before where we feel like there's nothing left we don't have a purpose we don't feel of value to anyone or anything empty lonely isolated. If we could find a way to bridge the gap between us feeling like we're far removed from suicide and finding a way to bridge that gap with someone that's there, I mean, what would the world be like and how would all of us feel if we always had someone to turn to regardless of how dark we felt? And if we're not talking about suicide, people are going to fall through the cracks because often people don't know. You don't know what you don't know and you won't know unless you ask or so, speak about it. And you're, and you're talking about when you, this per, the person who's in this struggle, because it, it is a struggle. And I know I went through something like that when I was uh, 17 and I knew how I was going to do it, but I, of course I didn't do it, but I was definitely thinking just, I can't make it stop, so I will be done. I will just be done. But how did, how, I think when I'm listening to you talk, like I can picture you, especially someone who's been used to being of service, 
I mean, yeah, I'm sorry, you said unstable, just wait a second, but I can picture someone who's used to being of service, you had a purpose, it doesn't necessarily mean it was making you feel better about yourself, but you at least had a purpose, and suddenly you're just, like, blowing in the wind, you're just lost, there isn't anything to tether to, how do you, in your experience, how do you happen to, how can you grab that person, because I know I've seen, especially as a mom, I've seen some of the teens that, as my daughter grows up, has been growing up that needed that tether. Like they just needed someone to, to just hang on to. How do you get them to know that tether can mean everything? Like just that connection. Well, that's a very, 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 very great question. And I'm glad that you asked it. I actually am a former suicide crisis hotline operator and I worked the knock shift. So I was alone. I operated the hotline by myself. And I, I feel like that, that was such a, a unique circumstance to be doing that alone. And it helps me answer this question that you just posed me. It's really about understanding that we're not supposed to have the answers. That's not our role. And we're not supposed to be pushing our agenda on someone else. As much as we want people to see look at this beautiful pasture over here. They're not there. So if they wanted to be in that pasture, you know, pasture, I'm pretty sure they would love to just hop on over. But it's, it's, it's about respect. It's about honoring that that's how they feel. I mean, it's so different. If, if it weren't me flapping in the wind, if I didn't go to say, Jennifer, Jen, if I went to you and I said, look, I don't know what to do anymore. I'm not, I don't know. I just, I'm just going to end it all rather than as opposed to me saying I lost my partner, uh, my job laid me off and those things. It's not as triggering for most because it's more relatable. If we could, if I had someone and if I could have been there for you when you were 17, I would just, I would exude respect. I would go, I can't imagine what that must feel like for you to feel like that's your only option. But I bet it feels good to know that it is an option and you can make the pain go away. That must feel so empowering that that's a choice for you. But then I'm also hearing you say you wish it could be better. So. It's a so, I, so I, I got the nuance of the difference. I completely got the nuance of the difference because you're actually validating them Absolutely. in their pain and you're hearing the pain and you're not trying to trade it for something else. No. And you're saying that's actually a legitimate choice, but you're also not choosing it. So, so you're, you're holding both. I hear, I, I love how you did that. That's, that is really validating because I, I get it when you're there. It's, that's all you know. Yeah. And it's, it's, so, it's so fascinating how much of, you know, before my training, it was so fascinating to me how numerous those, the, the words and phrases, like you were saying, rhetoric, it's so interesting and fascinating that everything that a lot of people say to someone, if they were to come forward and say, I want to, I want to die. Almost 100% of what I've heard folks say, and I completely understand that that's where people are at and that's all they feel that they have to offer is reassurance for someone. A lot of it is very, 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 very insulting, patronizing and invalidating. Like the common one I hear is, you have so much to live for. Not good. One would think that that conveys concern and care. In fact, it's really not respecting where they're at. And just as a, as a human being, how do you want to make someone feel? Do you want to show respect? So if I were talking to you when you were 17, which was what, a couple of years ago, right? Yeah. If I was talking to you when you were 17, I wouldn't be offended that you chose, that you feel like suicide is a choice. That's your choice. And whether I agree with it or not is not important. 
I can, I can have, and I learned this in the suicide crisis hotline, you can have whatever attitude you want about suicide. You can strongly agree. You can strongly disagree. You can be neutral. It doesn't matter. You can still show respect and compassion for someone without making it about yourself. And that's really challenging for most people because we have this compulsion to want to preserve life. It's all about preserving life, but what about the quality of life? What if in that moment you are the only person they've told that to? And you go and say, oh, but what will your parents think? You've shut them down. Yeah. You've Obviously, they've thought beyond that. And truth be told, this is something I actually apply in every aspect of my life when I'm talking to people, even if I meet them for a, fleet sec a fleeting second outside, is when someone is visibly out of alignment, their energy, just something about it, your gut is like, oh, something, something about that person. I really feel like I ought to connect to them. It's, it's just, it's okay to feel afraid and not have the answers. In fact, you shouldn't have the answers. I mean, some of us here are coaches and of course we want a result for someone. Hi, Kathy. Of course we want a, a result of life. But right now they don't feel like it's, in, it's the most easy decision to choose life. If someone doesn't feel ready to choose life and they don't feel ready to suicide, them coming to you and them showing up is an immediate invitation to talk to them. It's not going to be in a pretty little box wrapped up with a nice wrapping paper of 2020 with a little bow perfectly knotted and with your scissors you curl it up like that. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be it's not going to be a linear process because people are not linear. Last I checked, we're very intricate, unique people. And that's another piece of it is you being 17, being who you are, there's no way I'm ever gonna understand exactly what you're going through. No way. So why pretend? If I feel, if I felt for whatever reason unsure about caring for you, I would know that all I have control over is my choice to be there. That's all. So just being honest with someone too, if I felt uncomfortable and you said, like I have talked to some people of self-harm or they talked about surviving hanging themselves, I just listen. The way we connect to other people is sharing what our experience is. We can't, we're not, well, some of us might claim to be psychic, but we, for the most part, all we have is our intuition. And intuitively, even me kind of transporting myself to seeing you just flowing in the wind, I, I would let you flow in the wind. This when you're so, ready to stop flowing in the wind, you will. That's not up to me. That's actually so important because I think you're right. Especially if I have my parent hat on, it's to fix it or to help. Like it just kicks in. But your point about, because there's someone on the line that happens to deal with survivors of trauma. I mean, when you show up and you're finally ready to talk about your trauma and God knows how hard that is, right? That's huge. You show up, you're ready to talk about the trauma. The last thing you want to do is be judged or cajoled or nudged to get over it. You want to just be able to be in the hot mess that it is and then have somebody actually just listen and say, yeah, it makes sense that you feel that way. It so makes sense that you feel that way. Considering so, what you're going through, right? Yeah. I mean, it's so important because I think with suicide, we instantly panic. I mean, I know I panicked about my daughter. I just panicked. Like, no, this could happen and I'm panicked. Because, of course, we're, we're not feeling the feelings. We're just seeing the bigger picture and we're in the moment where we can have more perspective, we have more resources, whatever. We're not that person going through the pain. And it's easy to forget when you're in it, how, especially if you've never experienced it, but if you have, how debilitating and singularly focused it makes you at that time like that pain is everything everything so don't you're right don't tell me about the damn pasture if i wanted to be in the pasture i'd be in the pasture yeah i wouldn't I, yeah 
So, so, okay. So if, as you listen, you're not even looking for movement. You're just staying right at acknowledging your advice is to stay right at that acknowledging and listening stage because that's, what's most important first. I mean, more, most important than anything at that point. Right. And I'll share this later on in our discussion. I do have access to resources. I can connect with people. I have coaching. If people really genuinely want to learn how to do this now, how to save lives now, anyone can. And the reason why I feel so confident in that is because statistics have shown me in my training that most of the people folks turn to, if they do, to show they want help are people that aren't trained hmm. in suicide prevention. So what, are, what message are we sending? And I'm not trying to convict anyone that's watching or that's here. It's a serious question. What message are we sending to people when we give out the suicide hotline number like hotcakes or say, go see a therapist, go see a counselor. You don't know if they've already tried them. Yeah, true. You also, I think a lot of people don't know. I don't mean you specifically, Jen, but I don't, I think a lot of people don't know this. And I learned this in my training from my mentor in my assist program that I'm a part of for suicide intervention. She is a licensed therapist in the state of California. And she told me even then, decades ago when she got her credentials and now even now she said most therapists aren't required to be knowledgeable in suicide prevention and yet people are referring people to therapists also get this there are phd there are masters there are whatever i don't even know people whose role in society is to help people feel better here here and they are referring people to the suicide crisis line that i worked at and i wasn't required to have any academic background in psychology i wasn't required to have any form or formal training or experience and people that are whose role it is are referring people to the crisis hotline why so what message is that sending if we compartmentalize whose role it is to support someone in their state of emotional crisis? Honestly, what, what, what are, what anybody, anybody here? Yeah, I think. Hashtag well, replay. What, it feels like that, that um, it feels like actually what you're talking about is messaging for the people who aren't in the struggle so they can feel better like the people who are in the struggle will get the help they need. It almost, it's more like that, you know, like, yeah, oh, somebody's taking care of it it'll it'll be fine like just get them over to the suicide prevention people and they can fix it that's very american to me that we just you know you go to the store for your ice cream and you go to the store for your hair products and you and you go to the suicide prevention line for your suicide and you i mean it's just it, it it's it, I, in listening to you i'm understanding how we've made it an industry mm -hmm. and how we've decided there's a message in chat that if you're broken we're going to fix you and and, and in fact, yeah, people aren't broken, right? They're struggling, but they're not broken. They're just having a hard time with whatever's going on. And it's something we all can respond to if we slow down and acknowledge where folks are. Does that, yes. am I getting that right? Right, basically in summation, if I heard you correctly, you're basically saying, it's not my problem. It's not my job. Yeah, I think that's what we've, I think that's what all that structure, all that infrastructure does is it takes the responsibility away from us taking care of each other and says, oh, there's a, there's a store for that. I mean, it's a, it's a phone line, but I, I've, you're right. I've seen it on social media everywhere. And yet I still will respond to the tweet when someone's saying, I don't know if I can get up this morning. I'll just send a note and say, huh, been there. I completely do you have to i mean do you have to get up this morning maybe you just need to be there because yeah that's what they need right now they don't need to call the participate in the big machine the big suicide prevention machine so tell me about assist 
of course, I'm very happy that you asked. So ASSIST stands for Applied, and I'll type it here, Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training. So ASSIST is one of a multitude of resources that is part of the suicide intervention pathway. Okay. So suicide intervention is primarily what ASSIST is about. And what that is, is basically when all of the preventative measures, something like therapy or counseling, or going to a social spin class, anything, church, it could be anything that we do to take care of ourselves, to engage in ourselves and enjoy our lives. When those relationships and community resources don't meet us at the exact degree we need, suicide interventionists come in and specifically focus on staying safe for now. So to give you a little bit of context to collapse some time here, I'm on the crisis hotline, someone calls. I go, hi, this is CJ, that was my uh, alias. This is CJ, Um, thank you for calling the suicide prevention crisis line, are you having thoughts of suicide? That's exactly what we say as soon as they call. And the reason why is because all we have is the phone. So it's if if we don't ensure physical safety collaboratively, they won't get a second chance and no one would get a second chance for that matter, emotionally. And the key that the key takeaway that I got from assist is recognizing that we're not the only people with an attitude towards suicide. The person we're talking to has an attitude too. So what if they found out, and this is an exercise that we have an assist, what would happen if you had your attitude on a name tag? What if your attitude was front and center, someone could see it? How might a person that's having thoughts of suicide or thoughts of not wanting to be alive anymore sees your attitude about it, how might they respond? So it's really assist what assisted extremely well that I have failed to see anywhere else is about prioritizing the other person's needs emotionally and even physically before mine. And that honestly You would think it's common sense, but like you said earlier, when you're in it, it's a little bit of a different story. But keep in mind, sorry, there was a fly. Keep in (laughs) mind that we're not the only people with, with an attitude. It's so common and normal. And of course we all have our different experiences, unique experiences for why we may agree or disagree or are neutral about suicide, but so does the other person. It's maybe the hardest thing is to withhold your belief system, hold it back, hold back your assumptions, hold back identifying with the person and thinking they're like me, because that leads to all that other stuff, right? Things, your beliefs and assumptions. Once you start to think, oh, that's like me, I've been there before. No, you haven't. You've had your own journey. But if you don't be quiet, you're not going to hear what the other person's journey is. Like you have to, and I find that even in coaching, the hardest thing is to separate myself from the situ, from the other, from other. The other really needs to exist on their own. And I have to really seek to understand other and not in any way walk into their space. I need to stay out of their space because that's how I can find out what's going on with them. That sounds like that's key to assist is that you really stay detached and stay separate as you, as you listen. Right. Does that sound right? Right. Just being mindful that, and aware, there's the key word, there it is. Just being mindful and aware that this is a collaborative effort. Just because you think you are more emotionally stable 
which is another misconception. Just because you may think you're the most emotionally stable person to make that decision for someone, it needs to be collaborative. It's their life, is it not? Right. So as much as, I mean, I'm not personally a parent. I think most people in here might be. I really appreciate that all of you want your children or nieces and nephews to live. But understand that even as a child, they still have agency. And when you rip that away from them, what left did they have? What did they have left? Oh, yeah. Agency is really the underneath layer of this. If, and this is also something they taught us in ASSIST is that ASSIST is verbal intervention. It's not physical. Even if someone is at the edge of a bridge, the last thing you should do is rip them off of it. You have effectively removed their agency. So removing agency is just another way of saying you're trying to take control of the outcome of their life. It's about collaboration, respect, and assist really, it's 16 hours, it's, a, it's two days, one back to back. It gives you the space to have whatever attitude you want. It's not about your attitude's more right than another. It's not about that. We're trying to give you the tools and resources and assist gave me the opportunity to feel how I feel, but still be able to empower someone else without my attitude getting in my own way of working collaboratively with another person. And assist also helped me confront a lot of misconceptions about suicide. I mean, in, in assist, they tell us there's more to it than that. People could be so emotionally overwhelmed. And when you just ask about suicide, suicide is just another way of saying, you know, you want all the pain to go away. You want the pain to stop. So it's, it's a safe space for anyone to have whatever your personal experiences are that are the reasoning behind your decision to strongly agree, strongly disagree, be somewhere in the spectrum of your attitude towards suicide. That's important. It's on the same topic. We all have such a range of attitudes and that's okay. When we're focused on right or wrong, that's completely missing the whole purpose of the conversation. We're avoiding being honest and say for the sake of the scenario, if I had a certain attitude that wasn't useful to you at that time when you were 17, I would apologize. If we're out of sync, I would just apologize. I mean, I'm really sorry, I just got caught up in and I wasn't listening. Yeah, I misunderstood. I, I love, I, I want to open up for questions in just a second. Um, I love what you said about agency. It's like one of, I, I have this thing about my soapbox issues, but I think agency, first of all, we strip it away from teenagers. Like they just don't even have any, it's terrible. Like, yes, if you don't have agency, and for those of you who may not heard the word used in this way, it means your power to affect outcomes, your ability to, to make decisions, your ability to feel like an effective human. So I understand your point entirely came about, even if you're sitting on that bridge, contemplating jumping off, to tell somebody they can't do that is, is why you end up with a fuck you, I'm going to, because you can't take away their agency. That is their choice. It's stupid not to admit that it's a choice. And I love the idea of, of respecting that as a choice and being, instead of being afraid, which you're gonna still be afraid, but not, taking over them point is not to take over them and, and uh, so powerful i would love to get some questions folks you can just take yourself off mute or uh, whatever you want to do if you have some questions for kim um because this is such a, a an interesting topic and it's such a different point of view on this which is really important i think that we forget that we just want to get in it and we just want to control it and we just want to rescue and your point is no, show up and listen. And if you get it wrong, apologize and keep listening. 
if that's somebody you care about and realize they it's a real legitimate choice at that time for that human for whatever they're going through and um i don't know if there's any point i can't see the whole list of all the people that are here but if, if there's any questions just jump in um i'm also really interested in how <laughs> you then decided to make that pivot to to thriving to to service you you i mean you're still doing service but you're doing service with the agency right like how did you do how did you make the pivot i'll let tammy go and i will definitely answer that oh question. my question my i totally um feels natural everything that you're saying i'm totally um into that mindset but what i'm wondering is if I knew somebody who was suicidal and I don't, I don't have any direct experience. I have friends whose family members have committed suicide. Um, I have another friend whose son, teenage son attempted it, but um, is it different the approach or is it as effective this approach if it's coming from a loved one, a parent? Oh my gosh. I'm thinking, a parent probably is not even the right person, no matter what their approach. I don't know. What is your take on that? I think it's very situational. Um, and by that, I mean, just if someone wants to be that person for their child, go for it. It's, it's certainly not simple. There's no perfect way to go about it. Uh, I can tell you, and this might bring you some peace of mind, that my mentor, Innesis, she lost her husband to suicide. And her daughter calls her regularly, having thoughts of suicide. And it's really not easy for her. And her husband suicided over 15 years ago, and it still is there. And there were people in my training that their children also have thoughts of suicide. And it's really about trust in yourself it's really not about their trust in you the reason why i say it 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 just depends on intention so if one as a parent to a child feels like they're they might have a little bit more trouble keeping their intentions out of it being honest with the child that's a start being honest with your kid can go relieve so much pressure because maybe the confusion a parent's feeling is confusion the child's feeling too. Maybe the child's just as confused, like, should I be telling my parents? Should I be confiding them? Should I go see a therapist instead? Trying to flex that compassion muscle a little bit, put yourself in their shoes. They might feel just the way you do. And speaking those thoughts instead of having a conversation in our heads by ourselves. Being honest, if, if that's, if your child doesn't feel comfortable talking to someone else, then say that they don't have to talk to whoever they don't want to. Don't be afraid to ask, you know, if they don't feel comfortable talking to their school principal or their aunt, their uncle, or their friends even. Then keep asking them and, and, and showing resources and talking about resources they may, maybe haven't thought of about, you know, in addition to talking to me, would you feel comfortable talking to um, a former suicide crisis hotline operator? I don't work on the line, but I can connect you. So just collaboration is the key there. And if that's going to be a challenging thing to achieve, then it might be appropriate to say, you know, I don't feel like the best fit for you. I want to be there and support you. But I really truly feel like Exploring other resources together will be helpful for you. How do you feel about something like that? So talking to your child and restoring and really celebrating their choice to talk to you, that was a huge step. So just laying on the sugar and honesty and collaboration shows respect. And that's, there's no, perfect um, there's no perfect anything there's no perfect conversation there's no 
uh, clean cut way. And I know some of us wish that there was. So Kim, we're running out of time, but I, I want, and in the blog, I want to get those resources from you. Send me a note. Um, I want to make sure I put them, I do a blog wrapper for every episode. So we have information that we talk about during the show. People can come in and see it. But I just really do want to know how you made this pivot. I wanted to know how you, what, what finally, what changed in you? What happened that you were able to see your way forward? Well, it's really in, in the conviction that what probably hung, ha, had me hung up on to be vocal and, and open and stand in that was my own misconception with suicide that, oh, you know, people aren't engaging or people don't want to hear about it or people, that's speaks to the stigma and taboo around suicide. So really emphasizing that there's more to suicide than suicide. And I can really resonate deeply with someone that feels like they have no reason to take another breath. So for me, it's not so much, I mean, it certainly is a huge part of it, advocating and educating and empowering people on what suicide prevention and suicide intervention is really about but really it's also about maybe people won't engage, but there's someone that hears what I'm saying and then go, Oh my God, you understand me. Wow. So if I'm not openly inviting people to this conversation, no one's going to know the party's there. Wow. Sending that's, an invitation. That's um, super powerful. I think it's something we can all take forward and, and increase our awareness in that area and be much more open and not, and maybe let go of the fear, that gut fear that we have, which is super powerful. I, I want to thank you so much for coming on today. You really got me thinking and uh, I, I'm looking forward to sharing what you've talked about today on, um, and getting this out there and published because I think that there's a lot of folks who will really can make that adjustment in their mind and start to talk about this and, and maybe release some of that fear and be more open to changing and listening. I think it's really about, you're talking about speaking, but it's first being willing to listen and not be afraid and be okay with your fear. And just, that's yours, own it, shh, manage your fear, because it's not, you don't need to give it to somebody else. Thank you, Kim, so much. I wanna thank everybody for coming today. This was really uh, moving and powerful, and I appreciate it so much. I thank you all, and I will um, we'll wrap up the show. We'll come back tomorrow for Earth Day celebration. And thank you so much for everybody who came to the show today. I really appreciate it. Goodbye, everybody.